0: Well, in our study of the spiritual armor, I've asked a tough and hardened Roman soldier to come out here and display the armament that he wears so that we might better understand uh, the uh, spiritual lessons that can be found. Here comes the tough, right right here, tough and hardened Roman soldier. (laughs) Forward to the fray, right here. All right, there he is. Good. So I'm going to ask him about the armor that he's wearing. What do you have on your head, hard, tough Roman soldier? The helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation, good. And what is this right here? The breastplate of righteousness. Right, and you've got a belt here. What is that? The belt of truth. The belt of truth, right. And this is? Oops, sorry, again. The shield of faith. And what is on the shins or the feet? Um, the shoes of gospel of peace. Right, the shoes of the gospel of peace. And in your hand is? The sword of God's word. Right, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Thank you very much. Let's give him a hand. Thank you very much. What What a brilliant soldier, just intelligent, and that's my uh, grandson, Jonathan. (laughs) Okay, you're done. (laughs) My turn. You know, I thought this would really be a great way to show you that even a five-year-old can tell you what the pieces of the arm- armament are, and we certainly should know them too. And then it hit me. Ah, this may be a bad, bad illustration, because this spiritual warfare is not child's play. And some people think it is. This is cute. This is Sunday school. You know, we dress up in the armor and everyone has a laugh. And it is cute and it is fun from that standpoint. But the spiritual battle that you and I are in, this is no child's playground. This is real life and death every day. You and I have a tendency when we talk about spiritual warfare to go to one of two extremes. One extreme is to totally neglect it. We don't even want to talk about it. We act as though it doesn't exist, that there's no battle going on. Don't even think about it. And then the other extreme is to be totally obsessed with it. A demon under every rock. My car won't start. It must be a demon. No, maybe it's a bad carburetor. You know, you've always got this demons this and demons that, and you become more demon conscious than you are Christ conscious. And that's not what we want to achieve in this series. We want to again remember that we are in a spiritual war. It is real, but Jesus is the conqueror. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Never forget that. We're fighting Not to gain the victory, we're fighting from victory ground. And we want to maintain what Jesus has already accomplished. We want to maintain our connection to the one who is the victor. So keep those things in mind as we talk about the spiritual warfare. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been doing a series uh, in the book of Ephesians, sit, walk, stand, And now we're at that last section, chapter 6, standing in the spiritual battle. The Apostle Paul says in verse 10, one final word. After giving many lessons and great insight into our position in Christ and our walk with Christ, he says, let me just say one final thing. As though he left the most important maybe not most important, but certainly one of the most serious points he wanted to get across, this spiritual battle, he left it for the end. One final word, we're in a battle. Be strong with the Lord's mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand against the strategies, the deceptions, the wiles of the devil. All of his tricks, and his murderous intent. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood, human beings. We're fighting against rulers and powers. The evil workers throughout the world. Spiritual darkness in high places. Well organized. Very powerful. So use every piece that God gives you in his armaments to resist the devil when the evil day comes. And we are in the evil day, whenever we are tempted to sin. The evil day comes every day. When there is within us the desire to give in to that which is around us, the ways of the world, the wiles of the devil, or even the weakness of the flesh, that's the evil day, and we need to take our stand. So the scripture says, verse 14, stand your ground, putting on the sturdy belt of truth putting on the belt of truth. And we talked about that being the very first piece that a soldier would put on. They have a long flowing tunic or robe. And the first thing they would do would be to put the belt around so that they can uh, gird up the the loins, gird up the, the long robe and stick it in the belt so they can run and be ready for activity and battle. The second piece they would put on is this thing called the breastplate. So let's, first of all, look at the illustration that Paul uses. Most likely chained to a Roman soldier who has some of the armament on, or at least close by. And Paul says, let me use as an illustration this common uh, appearance of a soldier. You see them on the streets of Jerusalem all of the time. And this is what Jesus used to do to teach spiritual truth. Let me take something common and make a connection with a spiritual reality so that the abstract spiritual truth might be concrete in your vision and in your heart. So here's the illustration, it's the breastplate. Now Roman soldiers wore different kinds of breastplates. They usually went from the neck down to the waist, sometimes they would even go down to the knees. The breastplate was one of the most important pieces of the armor, in fact, the most important piece because it covered the vital organs of the heart, and of the lungs. It was the one piece of protection that would keep you away from a fatal blow to this very strategic region. Often, they were metal plates put on top of each other, almost like scales uh, in an animal that would move and shift. Or sometimes, it was the heavy iron mail that would be on the soldier. But here's something interesting about the armor that I had not noticed before. Usually, a Roman soldier, when he put the breastplate on, it covered his front and his back. In fact, the Greek word here for breastplate is where we get the English word thorax. And so it's covering the neck region down to the waist region, but even on the back. Now, I've heard many people say, when you put on the armor of God, there's no armor on your back, so you should not retreat. Well, that's a good spiritual lesson, except... That's probably not true. They probably had armament on the back. Even John Bunyan, in his great book, Pilgrim's Progress, says this. But now in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it. For he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the hill to meet him. His name was Apollyon. Then did Christian began to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn his back to Apollyon might give him a greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore, he resolved to venture and stand his ground. Again, I say a good spiritual lesson, but Probably not accurate when you're looking at a Roman's breastplate in his armor. It was front and back. Total coverage. That's a better concept. Total coverage of those vital organs. Think of a policeman wearing that bulletproof vest, right? They don't have anything maybe covering their face or some other reasons, but that Kevlar, the bulletproof vest, is there, usually front and back, because that's covering those vital organs that they need protection uh, in, in the midst of battle for. So that's the illustration. That's the picture that we have in mind. Secondly, let's ask the question, what about the spiritual application? What is the spiritual equivalency? What is Paul's point? What's the application? Well, this is the breastplate of righteousness. So he gives us exactly what he wants to picture, the idea that righteousness is the thing protecting us and righteousness is the very thing covering us. Now, this is not really a new image. If you go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, you'll hear Jehovah talking about uh, his own arm working salvation for him, his own righteousness sustaining him, and he put on righteousness as a breastplate and hel- the helmet as salvation. Isaiah 59. So this is imagery that the prophets used in the Old Testament and the Apostle Paul is just preaching the Old Testament book of Isaiah and making application to a new day. But the Apostle Paul does something very interesting in 1 Thessalonians. When he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, he says this, chapter 5, verse 8. Since we belong to the day and not to the night... Let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. You say, wait a minute, I thought the breastplate was righteousness. Well, Paul's interchanging them, which simply leads us to the conclusion that this is not always to be a fast and clear connection. There is overlap, and as we're going to see in a moment, there's one sense in which all the armament is really the same thing different aspects of the same spiritual truth. Now, I ask the question, if this is to be righteousness, what righteousness are we talking about? Because the Bible talks about two, generally speaking. There is the objective righteousness. We'll call this positional righteousness. It's the equivalent of the doctrine of justification. This is the righteousness that God gives to us in Christ, And it gives us a position in Christ of being accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1. Adopted as his children and justified before God. Objective righteousness. But then you have what we call, what we might call subjective righteousness, personal righteousness. And this is living righteously. So the objective righteousness, positional righteousness, is the righteousness God gives to me in Christ. Living morally and rightly, this is connected with the doctrine of sanctification. And the question I'm asking is, what is the breastplate? Is it objective righteousness in Christ or subjective righteousness, the righteousness I do, the the living righteously, the sanctification aspect of my daily life? It surprises me that many commentators feel it's subjective righteousness. And I have a rough time with that. Obviously, I think it's the objective righteousness of Christ. Now, the two do go together. They are unified and integrated, meaning that those who are righteous in Christ prove it by living righteously, not perfectly, but they want to live a holy, godly life. They want to grow in sanctification. But my protection is not found in my own doing. My protection is found in what Christ has done. And I think that's a huge difference. Look at verse 10. We are to stand then in his great might, not in our great integrity, not in our accumulated goodness. Our protection is found in the might of God and in the armor of God. Isaiah 64 has a familiar verse. I'm sure many of you have memorized it. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Remember reading that? The best you can do in God's sight is still filthy rags. And if you want an interesting study, uh, go into the Hebrew a little bit, do a little work on the concordance in your commentary and find out what filthy rags is. I don't even want to mention it this morning, but it's filthy. The best you can do is poor and defiled and discarded. That's your righteousness. How can that protect you? No matter how good it is. But we have a righteousness from God. Philippians chapter 3, I have it on the screen for you because it's such a powerful verse. Paul wrote the book of Philippians at the same time he wrote the book to the Ephesians from the same jail cell. So see, these are some of the same thoughts that he's interacting with. And Paul said, listen, if you want to measure people by their human attainments, I'm at the top of the list. I'm a a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin as touching a Pharisee. I'm the cream of the crop. If you want to just look at human attainment, I'm way up there. However, all of the accumulated righteousness that I have merited over my life, I count as dung, as rubbish, that I might win Christ. And then you have verse 9, that I might be found in Christ not having a righteousness that comes from keeping the law. Not my own that is the result of obedience to a moral code. No, no, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So Paul says, here is my protection. It's Christ. The thing that covers my vital organs spiritually is to know that I'm accepted in Christ. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion, if we can use such a term, that has this imputed righteousness concept to it? Every other religion says, do this, you do that. You've got to suffer. You've got to do penance. You've got to make your way to heaven. And Christianity says, no, God in his love sent salvation down in a person. And when you believe in Jesus, all the goodness of Christ is attributed to your ledger, to your account. And I'm accepted not based on what I do, but based on what Jesus has done. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, these beauties are my glorious dress. Miss flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Yeah, the beauty of the Christian is Christ and the righteousness of Christ that covers them. Or how about this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible tells us that God has made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. This is a trade, the great exchange. I give to Jesus my sin, and He gives to me His righteousness. And that's what salvation is. He wipes my sin away, makes me perfect, and that's the breastplate that covers me spiritually. Personal integrity is not a breastplate. It's not adequate to meet the fiery darts of the evil one. It would never stand the test in the evil day against all the evil machinations of the wicked one. No, it's got to be God's righteousness, divine righteousness, perfect righteousness. One of the greatest theologians that America has ever produced, Charles Hodge, said this, While it is generally explained by many commentators that subjective righteousness, living righteously, is what Paul means, this righteousness is no protection. It cannot resist the accusations of your conscience, the whispers of despair, the power of temptation, and the hideous assaults of Satan, much less stand up to the severity of the law. Doubtless, Paul had in mind imputed righteousness and urges believers to put on the breastplate that is the righteousness of God in Christ. It is infinitely perfect righteousness consisting in the obedience of Christ to the law and the sufferings of the Son of God on the cross which satisfies all the demands of justice. It was after Bible college before this truth really gripped my soul. I knew it, but I didn't know it. Know what I mean? I mean, I think I knew it. I think I understood the concept. I probably could have explained it, probably even preached it, but it never grabbed hold of my heart that I'm accepted in Christ, and I cannot improve upon that position, and in Christ, I am forgiven forever. And that righteousness covers my heart and covers my soul. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of human origin. They are divinely produced. And so that has to be the righteousness of Christ. I love the story in, this, in the book of Kings. This is 1 Kings 22. King Ahab is the king of Israel, basically a wicked kingdom, and he joins in league with the king of Judah, who is Jehoshaphat. Judah's the southern kingdom, Israel's the northern kingdom. They join in league to go in war against uh, uh, the uh, Arameans. And as they're going into battle, the king of Israel, King Ahab, wicked king, says, a Jehoshaphat, by the way, I'm gonna dress in disguise when we go into battle. I want you to wear your royal robes. <laughs> And so they go into battle, and sure enough, the enemy says, don't shoot for anyone except the king. And so they saw the royal robes of Jehoshaphat, and they began to shoot their arrows at the king. And Jehoshaphat said, it's not a good idea to join league with a wicked king. And he turned around and ran from the battle. But Ahab, disguised so no one knew he was the king, with armor on, the Bible says in verse 34, now a certain man drew a bow at random and shot an arrow, and it struck the king, King Ahab, between the joints of his armor. So he said to his driver, hey, turn around, I'm dying here. And he bled out in the chariot. If you and I think that the armor around us is our own righteousness, there are so many chinks in that armor, so many holes in the joints, that the devil will not have a hard time at all with intentionally piercing us where we're not protected. But you have the righteousness of Christ over you and there's no way the devil can get in. That's the beauty of this wonderful truth. So thirdly, how then do I appropriate this? We've got an illustration, we've got a spiritual application, and now appropriation. How do do I make it my own? It's by faith. That's what it said in Philippians 3, verse 9. It is the righteousness that comes from God and it's received by faith. It's when you believe, not with the head but the heart, when you believe so that you cast yourself upon Christ, your only hope is Christ. When you believe sincerely with your heart that you're a sinner and Jesus is a Savior and you trust Him, the righteousness is yours, clothed in the beauteous garments, beautiful garments of the Savior. So that when we pray, we pray with the breastplate on. When we sin, we sin with the breastplate on. When we witness, we witness with the breastplate on. And it's that breastplate that gives us our victory and our joy and our confidence. And you cannot stand in the evil day unless you're covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Some of you have been trying to gain God's favor with your good works, with your attempts at repentance, with your sacrifice, attending church, giving money, whatever it must be, trying to be good to your brother and your sister, hoping that God will accept you into heaven. None of it will work. The only way you can be accepted before him is in the righteousness of Christ. And then you want to live righteously for his glory. We sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. It's a generational song. Some of you don't know that. Each piece put on with prayer. That's how you put it on. It's by faith in prayer. Lord, I pray, forgive my sin. Lord, I pray, save me in Christ alone and cover me with his righteousness. And then every day you should acknowledge I'm trusting in the righteousness of Christ and only that righteousness. How can you have joy in the midst of the world when so much evil is all around you? Is there ever any hope of changing this place? And you say, man, I don't know. How can you have confidence when you are such a sinner? I talk to myself this way. How can you ever hope to do the ministry when you are such a failure? And my only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I've got to hide in it it's got to cover me. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Now here's the truth I mentioned last week and I want to put it on the screen for you so you can see it. Every piece of the armor of God is really Jesus. That's why it's all intertwined. It's kind of a, it's all Jesus, different aspects of Christ's ministry to us, but it's all Christ. The belt of truth John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The breastplate of righteousness, as we saw in Philippians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, it's Jesus. He is our righteousness. The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Isaiah 9, Jesus is the prince of peace. Or how about the shield of faith, Hebrews 12? Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who begins it. He's the one who carries us along, and he's the one who brings us to completion. Or this helmet of salvation, Acts chapter 4. As Luke was leading us, I was thinking, what a perfect song. There is no other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. The only way to be saved is Jesus. He is our salvation. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When you get to verse 14, it says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Merry Christmas. That's it. Jesus is the Word. Which part of the armor is Christ? He's all of it. He gives me faith. He gives me salvation. He gives me peace. He gives me righteousness. He is the truth. He is my sword. It's all Christ. And one of the problems you and I have is that we get so caught up in creedal Christianity and creeds aren't bad. We're always talking about propositions and beliefs and those aren't aren't bad unless we extract them from the person that they reflect who is Christ. When Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, opened up the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he said, I've got a creed, and I've got a faith, but if you want to ask me the sum and substance of my theology, I will say it is Jesus, and Jesus alone. But this concept of Jesus, our righteousness, is not New Testament alone. It's Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, when Jeremiah was looking ahead to the coming Messiah, who would be the righteous branch and the seed of David, he said, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live safely. A great revival will happen to the nation of Israel when Christ comes again. And this is the name by which that Messiah will be called the Lord our Righteousness. A fruitful study in the Old Testament is to look at the names of God, which are often compound names. You'll take the name El for God, and it will be El Elyon, God Most High, or El Shaddai, God Most Powerful. The other name often used is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And so you've got Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Well, here's a compound name taken out of Jeremiah, and it is Jehovah Sid Kenu. And what does that mean? Jesus is my righteousness. It became the watchword of the Reformation. It was like the key word, Jehovah Sid Kenu. We're in Christ and Christ alone. So many other religions talk about finding your way to heaven, gaining righteousness. No, no, Jesus is our righteousness. And that's his name was even before the eternal councils were revealed and will be his name forevermore, Jesus, my righteousness. Can you say that? There was a young boy named Bobby who lived in Scotland and went to church on a regular basis. He was a good boy. I mean, if you were to gauge him by other people, he went to church and didn't, wasn't involved in crime, was nice to his neighbors and to his family, but Bobby knew in his heart that he was a sinner, that he was selfish, And every time he would pray, he would see his own sins. And so he tried to get rid of him and tried to do everything the law told him to do, but he couldn't keep it perfectly. And he was in utter despair until one day the gospel broke over his heart and he realized my only hope of heaven is Jesus and he put his faith and trust in Christ. And then Bobby wrote a conversion hymn that was popular back in that day. The conversion hymn of John Wesley is "N can it be. The conversion hymn of John Newton is amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Well, here is Bobby's conversion hymn. Let me read it to you. It's about Jehovah Sid Kenu. I once was a stranger to grace and to to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sid Canu meant nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure or John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sid Canu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah said, Canu, t'was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal legal fears shook me. I I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah said, Canu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before that sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah said, Canu, is all things to me. Jehovah said, Canu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah said, Canu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field. My cable, my anchor, my breastplate, my shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever, my God sets me free, Jehovah Sidkenu, my death song shall be in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there may be some here who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus. I pray that I pray that you will touch their hearts. Lord, I pray that you will shake their world. I pray, Lord, that you will let them see that there is no hope outside of Christ. But if they would turn from their sin right now and confess they are a sinner and believe with an honest heart that Jesus is their Savior, trust Him, this moment they'll be freed from all the legal fears of the law and all the condemnation that it breathes out and they will find in Jehovah Sidkenu, in Jesus, perfect righteousness and total forgiveness. And then for every one of us who put our faith and trust in Christ and we try to live every day in our own strength and we fail so miserably, teach us that we must war every day with the breastplate of righteousness in place and trusting the one who is altogether good to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.